Tremendous privilege to be here this morning, the brethren worshiping God together, as close as we can get to heaven here on earth, I believe. Trust you saying amen to that. We have uh, been praying for the presence of God, the awareness of his presence. God is here. Are we aware of it? Is he speaking into our lives? Are we in communion with him? There's a couple of stories I'd like to share here this morning. The first one, I believe it's a true story. I just heard someone else explain it to me, but it has a tremendous message. The story of these, uh, there's a couple of survivors that, of a shipwreck, and they were in this lifeboat and on the Atlantic Ocean, and then some rescuers came up. And, and as they got close to the lifeboat, they asked them, you know, what, what is it that they're needing the most? They said, water. They said, water. They were... They're pretty much about dying from thirst. And the, the rescuers say, well, just, you have a bucket there, just put it down in and, and dip water. And they said, no, you know, they were on the ocean. Salt water is no good for thirst. And they said, yeah, yeah, just try it. And, and it got them convinced to try it. And they, they started drinking and just drinking and drinking. And here, what it was, that they were close enough to the mouth of the Amazon River, and you have just... I understand at the mouth of the Amazon River is about 90 miles wide. You had a tremendous uh, force of, of fresh water coming out of Brazil there, and it was pushing the salt water out. And here they were basically about dying from thirst, and they were surrounded by millions and millions of, of gallons of uh, drinking water. The second story is one that was related to us as we lived in Peru. The neighbor told us about this story. He was hired to be a mediator for the, uh, well, there was back, I'm going to say as the crow flies, it must have been maybe 20 miles or so from our place, up in the high mountains, you're talking maybe 15, 16, 17,000 feet above sea level. And uh, there was a, uh, some international company that had bought land there or had possessed it somehow from the native people. And he, he was explaining to us just how these people had lived before. These are people that, you know, up, I don't know if any of you have been that high, 15, 16, 17,000 feet, there's hardly an air to breathe that high. It's, uh, and it's extremely cold. And uh, these people were barely surviving the the land was eroded. There was hardly any topsoil, and not much grows at 15,000 feet. I think they might have grown some potatoes and, and a couple of the small grains uh, of uh, wheat and oats, maybe. That's about it. Huh? And he talked about how extremely poor and destitute. He said that there was grown sheep there that weighed about 14 pounds. And they're out there grazing, and there's, there's hardly anything to eat. And so the, the paradox of the situation is these people are sitting on top of billions and billions and billions of dollars of gold. He said there's that much gold there as they were making roads to prepare for mining. They were, they were digging up gold. And uh, no one, I think, at this point is aware of just how much gold is there, but it's, it's one of the bigger probably one of the bigger gold mines that uh, is in the making of, in the world. And so here you have these people. They're almost starving. They're, 
they're barely surviving and they're sitting on top of, of a tremendous wealth. And uh, of course, in, in both situations with the water and with, with the gold, there was ignorance. They weren't aware of it. And they, they might have been uh, some of those people that would have come across gold, maybe not even understood what it was. And if they would have, they wouldn't have really had a market for it. Back up in there, they were so isolated, there was really hardly any stores. They just basically lived off of what they grew there. They hardly knew what money was, I don't think. And uh, even if they would have known that, that the gold was there, there really wasn't an ability to mine it. Uh, and so it wasn't going to do them a lot of good. Uh, and so why am I sharing these stories at the beginning of uh, the message here? I, I think there's, there's an allegory, almost like a paradox, of I see what the scripture has to say about riches and how so many Christians, including ourselves sometimes, can live, where we can be those people stranded out there and dying from thirst when, when we're surrounded with, with good drinking water and not realizing it. Or we can be those poor people up there on those high mountains struggling to survive when we're sitting on top of, of tremendous wealth. And uh, so this morning, uh, the title of the message is Pursuing Riches. And this is, uh, I'm not sure if you're okay with this, this is a health, wealth, and prosperity message, okay? But we want to look at riches from God's perspective. And, and we know that there's a lot of health, wealth, and prosperity messages that are way off course. And I, I trust you won't go away this morning saying that's what this was. Uh, how does God look at riches? How does he perceive our understanding of riches maybe more important? How does he look at us? And how does he see us? Does he see us as, as poor people there in, in Las Bambas in the high mountains of Peru about uh, barely surviving when, when he has provided tremendous riches for us? And one of, one of the aspects of, uh, of riches, we look at the life of Christ. We, we heard here in the opening about Jesus being the creator of all things. And we have that same thing. Maybe I'll turn to that Colossians 1.16. I think it, Colossians 1.16 says basically the same thing the Apostle John says there in, in, in John chapter 1, but in a very much a nutshell. Talking about Christ, it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And so this would make Jesus Christ the richest being that ex has existed or exists in the universe. And then we can look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. It says it this way. And we already come across this word this morning, those of us that were studying the Sunday school, the adult lesson. It says that Hebrews 1, 2, verse 1 says that God spoke, you know, through the, the fathers and the prophets in these last days. It says he hath spoken these last days 
unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he has made the worlds. Now, if I was an only son, and my dad had a, a vast earthly empire, and his real estate was worth millions and millions of dollars, and naturally speaking, I would, even though maybe I wouldn't have access to it yet, I would consider myself a pretty rich person because I am in line to be the heir of everything that my father owns. Uh, for me, that's not the situation. Uh, my dad's gone, and, and there's 13 of us to divide out whatever might be left. But in this case, it says that God has appointed Jesus Christ to be the heir of all things. And a little later, we'll get to Romans, where it talks about us being joint heirs. We have Jesus Christ born in a cave or a barn. And it's not, I don't think, as it depicted in these manger scenes. Everything's beautiful. Everything's clean. I think this was probably some dark, stinky, mucky hole that Jesus has brought into this world. I really believe that's what it was. People looked at Christ as an Ill illegitimate child. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, which was just another sign of poverty. They took off when he was a small child, took off as refugees in Egypt. And uh, we look at refugees today, and we see often how they leave everything. They're destitute, and they need help. That's probably, for the most part, how, how Jesus was when he was taken to Egypt. And he came back, and he settled into Nazareth. And Nazareth, I think, was a very poor town in, by the... Uh, sea of Galilee. And he came into his earthly ministry and he was persecuted. And, and he himself spoke the words that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Literally, there is really no place to call home for Jesus. And as he, his life was coming to an end here, they took away the clothes off of his back Jesus, hanging from the cross, gave away his mother, and he died penniless, looking at it from a human perspective, condemned as one of the worst criminals, dying with the most disgraceful and painful death known to man. Did Jesus live his earthly life in poverty or in abundance of riches? This is not a, quick, a, a trick question. This is something to stir our minds here this morning. Do we perceive him as someone that was rejected and, and cast out and forgotten, or do we perceive him? I'm talking not about where he's at now. I'm talking about his earthly life as the richest man that ever walked here on this earth. And I'd like for us, if we want to look at Riches from God's perspective that we would consider Jesus as he walked here on this earth as the richest man that ever walked on the face of the earth. And the riches had nothing to do with what we would consider riches here. It had to do with the life that was flowing forth from him. We know that as he ministered to people, as he, he, his life was just a life of giving and giving and serving and giving, where was it coming from? You can't give anything you don't receive. And that's one of the, the 
key principles of ministry. If you want to be able to minister, if you want to be able to help, if you want to be able to bless others, you must, first of all, be able to receive it to pass it on. And that's what ministry is, simply receiving and passing on. And Jesus, as he walked here on this earth, he invite, invited and he invites us today to learn of him and to follow him. And we have in Philippians 2, maybe I'll just uh, turn there, you may if you want. Verse 4, said, Look not every man unto his own things, but every man also unto things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The way Jesus lived, the way he perceived life, the way he walked on this earth, Pastor Paul is saying, think like Jesus thought. Have the concept of Christ. Understand things from Christ's perspective. And then it goes on to say that, uh, I put it in my own words, even though he was God, he emptied himself of, of his divinity in a sense. He'd never stopped being God, but as he walked on this earth, I believe he walked in a way that we can follow him. In other words, what he had access to as he lived here in this life, it's not something that's exclusive for him. We have access to the same resources. That makes sense? Many he taught. And Jesus taught a lot about how to relate to earthly riches. And we can keep on reading it there in Philippians chapter 2, and it talks about because he, he did this, because he was willing to humble himself and to come to the lowest of the low, Obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Because of this, God hath exalted him, given him a name which is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and all things in heaven and earth, things in earth, and all things under earth. Jesus is now our brother. Jesus is now our forerunner. Jesus is now a man that has gained a right for mankind in heaven. And whatever access we have and there was a promise this morning and I'd be love to just teach on the promise of the father and there was the question I had and didn't get to it quite but it talks about there in Galatians chapter 3 the faith of Christ and it talks also about faith in Christ and I had the question is there a difference between the faith of Christ and the faith in Christ and I believe this morning there is I believe that the faith of Christ is what Christ latched onto himself by faith being the seed of Abraham, being Abraham's son, the, the, the abundance that he had, the riches that he had that are, should be attractive and drawing to us this morning as riches that he got because he believed the promise of the Father. He received it by faith. And I personally believe he received it as he went down to the Jordan River and was baptized and came up full of the Holy Spirit. And so... The abundant life that we look at, the life of Christ, is the life that is for us today. It's available to us. And is it possible that I can be guilty of, of being 
those poor destitute people, they're living on top of millions and millions of dollars of riches and, and just not laying hold, not, not at all spending it in my life. When Jesus taught about earthly riches, he taught that we should not lay up treasures here in heaven. We should lay them up, or in, here on earth, we should lay them up in heaven. And how do we do that? Here in a couple of days, I have plans to travel to Peru. And uh, there's some places, maybe a few places, where I could pull these dollar bills out of my pocket and I could put them on the counter and I'd be okay. But in many places, if I was going to the store to buy something, they would say, no. So I have to go and I have to uh, do an exchange and I have to buy solace. And, and those solace is what is going to sustain me. And I don't know if this, this is an application that makes sense to us this morning, but there's an exchange that has to take place. We have to exchange our dollars to whatever they call the currency that's in glory. And, and the idea is that we don't wait till we get there. We, we do our exchange now, and some people like to play with money. Oh. Okay, so the soul is, at one point, we're, we're losing on the dollar, so you're going to maybe buy up a whole bunch of dollars. And then somewhere that thing changed and the dollar's going to lose out and the soulies are going to gain. And so if you've got all these dollars you bought up when, when, they were, when they were worth more, then after a while the soulies are worth more, so you're going to buy soulies. And so you, by playing this, you can, you can actually make money by, by just exchanging money at the right time. And, and you've got to figure out which way it's going to go. And I'm not interested in doing that. That's not why the Lord has blessed us with, uh, with uh, spending money. But I use that as a, another um, parallel to how do we prepare or how do we send it out ahead? And I'm not here to give a lot of details this morning, maybe just some principles. But is this something we're doing? Are we living transmitting whatever earthly riches that God has blessed us with for something that's going to be valuable to us 100 or 200 years down the road or a million years, whatever you want to figure you want to use there. And uh, just how literal do we take this thing of not laying up treasures here on earth? This is teaching that Jesus left with us. And it's teaching that has a lot to do, I think, with how rich or how poor we are here this morning. Another thing he taught, uh, we have this uh, in the parable of the sower, where the seed went out. And he said clearly that because of the deceitfulness of the rich, he's talking about earthly riches, it's choking out the entrance of the word of God. And I think that is something that we in the United States of America and maybe across the world, especially here, and, and also as Anabaptist Christians, something that is affecting us, where the Word of God is not experienced in its richness, it's not experienced in its, in its power as it could be because there's a choking, there's a, a life that's being strangled as we become wrapped up in, in what earthly things can do. And so 
Uh, I'm just pointing out some of the reasons why we might be destitute when we can be living in riches. I was, as I was preparing for this, I was looking at Jesus speaking to the church of Smyrna. We have that in Revelation 2, 8 to 11. I'm not going to turn to that, but it was interesting to see as I looked into it, Smyrna was considered one of the more prosperous cities of Asia Minor. And yet, obviously, the Christians there were living in extreme poverty, and I think the reason for that is because they suffer a lot of persecution. And the type of riches I'm talking about this morning, you could go back to some of our forefathers, and they're locked up in a dungeon, their, their, their properties have been confiscated, and their children have been taken away from them, and uh, they're sentenced to be taken to the stake to be burned or to be drowned or to be beheaded. But if, if, those, if those people remain faithful, they're some of the richest people on the earth. That's, that's a godly concept of riches. As we go further down into the, uh, the, the message that Jesus had, and I wanted to mention this, that the, the church or the message that Jesus had to seven churches of Asia, Revelation 2 and 3, have some pretty high priority in my attention in the Bible. And the reason for it is, is I think I can grasp a little bit, in part at least, so here we have churches that are already established. We have the New Testament is well underway, and we see what Christ is expecting of the churches throughout the ages. Functioning churches that are, are living for Jesus and the standard that Jesus has for his church. That standard has not changed. What Jesus expected of those seven churches, he expects of all the churches that name the name of Christ today. And then we get to the, the church of the Laodiceans. And obviously... The Christians in Laodicea that formed that church and they were financially, materially, earthly, prosperous church. And he said that you say that you're rich and have need of nothing, but he called them wretched and he called them miserable, he called them poor, he called them blind and he called them naked. And then he gave them some counsel, take Isav. And, and use it so that they could see their spiritual condition. They could see their poverty. They could see where they stood before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other thing I saw as I was looking a little bit, they said that there was in Laodicea, there's two things I saw. One is that the water came from some hot springs, some sulfur, and it was came to them lukewarm and sulfurous, the water supply. The other thing that they had in Laodicea, a hospital that was renowned for its ability to heal people from eye problems or blindness. And so uh, it's kind of ironic that the message that Jesus had for, for Laodicean church that they needed to repent or it would spew them out of his mouth. He would vomit them. What a terrible condition. What a terrible state of poverty.
when I look at another church that we have in the scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I say church, it could be churches. I, I believe it's, yeah, it's portrayed that way. In, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and to beyond their power they're willing to give of themselves. I'll stop reading there. We have a church that obviously financially, earthly speak way, uh, terms of speaking, they were poor. And yet they were, I think even the Apostle Paul on his journeys, they were some of the main supporters that kept him going as he went about preaching. And he's calling to the attention of the Corinthian church, uh, to this church as an example. Then further on down in verse 9, he points to, to Christ. I want to read verse 9 here. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Here again we have some, some conflicting terminologies here. And in our earthly minds, our earthly thoughts, it's hard for us to, to grasp this. But Jesus came and we looked at the life and it was a life of giving. And I... One time I was assigned for a, a, like a week-long Bible institute, I was assigned the topic of grace, and I dug into that, I dug into it. And as I, the deeper I looked into it, the more I realized I don't understand what it is. I don't know if any of you have, have looked at that. What is grace? And I, I tried to, to look at what Scripture has to say, and grace definitely is not as it's been portrayed in the, in the uh, Protestant circles that somehow grace comes out almost as a license to sin. That the more I sin, the more grace is available and, and, and God's just going to keep forgiving at whatever rate I keep sinning. And that's, uh, uh, I think, was it, maybe, was it Peter that talked as, as grace as a license to sin, kind of that idea. I don't have the scripture right now. But grace, I, I would understand, to be what flowed out of the life of Christ says that, you know, the law came through Moses, but truth and grace came through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have that in, in John chapter 1. But here we have the Apostle Paul explaining the grace of Christ as, as someone that was rich, and he kept expanding and expanding himself until there was nothing left to give. When he gave his life on the cross, there was nothing more to give. It was all there was, and yet it was enough. And the scripture talks about the riches of his grace, and we were reading that in our, our family devotions last night. And maybe we'll turn to that, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Ephesians 2, 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So we, we understand God to be a God of riches, a God that has access to all wealth that there is. And that wealth 
was expended for us to be able to come to salvation. And that these are, are truths that are, are so deep and hard for us to grasp. But it's true that it cost God something. He had to, God has a bank account, and he had to reach into the bank account to, to do something so that we can get right with him. And when I think of righteousness, which is the word that came up this morning as we were studying Sunday school, I think of how we look at trying to get right with God. How do I get right with God? And the Jews rejected Jesus because they could get right with God by doing their own thing by following their concept of the law, which no one really was following anyway. And the way I get right with God is I say, I need Jesus, I trust in him. Faith in Christ is trusting not just some kind of head knowledge, but putting my whole life into his hands and, and letting him do with me what he needs to do, to, to uh, do an operation. There's a, a foreskin in my heart that needed to be taken away, an operation that only Jesus could do that now makes it possible that I can live a life of riches. I'd like to turn out Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, when I read through this, I think well, this is heavenly language that somehow needs a translator because I'm living on earth and I don't understand heavenly language very well. But Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. What does all spiritual blessings in heavenly places mean? And are those blessings available to us now? Now we read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where it talks about, Eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, nor has perceived the heart of man things that God has prepared for him that, that believe in him. And we, we right away think of things that are coming in heaven, but it's given in present tense. It's things that are for us now. He said are revealed to us through the Spirit. I'd like to keep reading here in Ephesians 1, verse 4. According as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, that after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also after ye believed were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, it's a little hard for to put all that together, but there is an inheritance. And if we read in Romans chapter 8, it talks about the part of redemption hasn't taken place. Our bodies haven't been redeemed. The world has not been redeemed. There's a lot of the effects of the curse of sin that we're living with. 
And that's all coming yet. But what we do have is an earnest, which is simply just a down payment. This is, so I, I want to go buy this car, and I got to get my finances together. So I go to the car dealer, and I say, keep this car for me. I need this one. This is mine. I say, well, you know, we've got to put down something so that if someone else comes along, I can have the shorts you're going to show up. So let's just put down $2,000, and that is a down payment. And that down payment, as long as I stay within the agreement, I can consider that car mine, even though if I didn't get the keys and drive away with it until I come up with the rest of the finances. And that's how Apostle Paul here is portraying. If I, this morning, am living under the direction and power and guidance of the Holy Spirit, that is proof that the rest is coming. And if I'm not then I can't have this short set, the down payment is, is there. I, I, I need to make sure I have that right. And, and basically, now it's hard for us to comprehend all this. What I believe we see in the life of Christ was an exhibition of what it looks like for someone that has earnest. He came, and I, I, I can't uh, claim this this morning, he came, he had the spirit without measure. But I, I believe at the extent that the Holy Spirit has ownership of me, or I have ownership of the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure how all that works, but I like the idea of the Holy Spirit having ownership of me, then I have all the riches that I need to live as I ought to. And if I don't, there's reasons for that, and I need to look into that. So the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, the false one is that, you know, if you give a tenth, you know, it's, it's like sowing seeds, and if you give $1,000, you guys going to bless you with 10000 If If you have enough faith, then you're not going to get sick, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the Christians are... Uh, I remember one time I was in a transaction with someone and we were in Guatemala City and they had the TV on and this preacher was going at it. I mean, he just lay your hands on TV and, and pray this prayer with me and, and then send your funds to a certain place and you, you're just never going to know poverty again. And it's so disgusting because it's so false. That means that uh, most of the apostles didn't qualify because they died poor, miserable martyr's death as they follow Christ. And yet they, they died with tremendous riches. So we're pilgrims and strangers here seeking a better country. We're seeing how we can convert U.S. dollars into whatever currency is called in, in glory. I don't know if it matters. But there's some other factors I wanted to look at just a little bit this morning. Sometimes it happens that in our churches we're bound by sin. There's things that we don't have power to deal with. There can be jealousies. There can be relationship issues. There can be bitterness. There can be sexual sins. There can be bondages. There can be people driven making decisions driven by fear. 
There can be stress that can get us down to where we don't function as we should. Uh, there can be sometimes strife or divisions in, in, in church settings. There can be tremendous empty pursuits of the American dream where you can have this late model SUV and you can have this big RV sitting in your yard and you can take these month-long vacations and you can just go and just spend it on yourself just to see. You can buy all these big toys and you set your selfish body on there and you see how much power it has and how, how many places you can take this thing. And it's all for me. I'm talking about spiritual poverty because that's what it is. The North American dream, however you want to translate it, is just that. And then you wonder, you come to church, we want to bless God, and we serve God, and the power is lacking. The presence of God isn't there as it should be. And I set aside all my earthly focus for a couple hours, and then I go back, and we're going to see how much I can accumulate here of earthly goods. And I battle with these things. What do we do with them? I'm talking about poverty this morning. Not the type of poverty that people out there have, but that poverty as God sees it. It's those poor people up there in Las Bambas that are trying to eat a little bit of a living off of this poor dirt that's up where too high for really much of anything to grow or those poor stranded shipwrecked sailors that are dying from thirst and we have here in Ephesians 1 and we have many other places in scripture just a portrayal of what riches really are and how much does it grip our heart? Or we say, this is boring stuff. I want to get out there and, and, and find out what's happening in the ball game this afternoon. Jesus came. He said, I come that you have life and that you have it more abundantly. What does that look like? And, and Jesus himself was that. He was a portrayal of abundant life if there ever was. And Jesus had it straight. And, and I don't say that he never struggled. I think of when he was facing the cross and he, he told the Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. One of the things that really grabs me as I read down through Ephesians 1, it talks about having made known unto us the mystery of his will. In the New Testament sense, the mystery is something that is hidden from mankind that is revealed to the followers of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And sometimes maybe we can grapple in life. What should I do with this? What should I do with that? Um, decisions we have to make. And I believe that one of the riches that we have is the riches of knowing that I'm in the Father's will. I'm doing what the Father wants me to be doing. Jesus, right at the end of his life, he, there in, in John 17, he, he said, Father, the work that thou hast given me, I have done. And to me, that's a tremendous testimony. Nothing more, nothing less. This is what the Father has given me to do, and I have accomplished it. And he's ready to move on now. We know that was even before the cross. And yet, I think in his mind, the cross was 
already worked through when, he's, when he prayed that prayer. So ability to choose right, to make right decisions in life based on eternal perspectives, based on not what is in, in it for me right now, but what is in it for me as I'm part of this bigger picture of the kingdom of God and what God has for me for my life. Why do we get stressed out? Why do we get frustrated? Why, why do we get afraid and, and, and act different than we should because we're afraid? I don't think Jesus lived that way, and he doesn't want for us. So if we look at the life of Christ as he walked here on this earth, just always doing what is right, always blessing, always giving. You know, he's facing this tremendous thing of the cross before him, and he's praying for his disciples. It's his focus is not on himself. Even at that point, the focus was on others. What a tremendously rich, fulfilling life. We can grab a hold of that. He went about doing good and healing those that were oppressed of the devil. That's a testimony of Christ. So as we have this life to live, we have choices to make. And the choices we make have a lot to do with what kind of riches we're, we're living with. We have energy, put our energy and effort into things that are worthwhile, things that will remain after we pass on from here. And I was just thinking as I was wrapping up studying this, I think of, I thought of Esau. I don't know, you know what, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, just, just thinking in, in earthly terms, what? the net worth of what they had was. But I, I look beyond that, and I think of the heritage that Abraham passed on to his children, that was passed on to his children, that was passed on to his children. And with Esau, that stopped. You look at the heritage that Esau, I'm talking about his children and his descendants, and how they were completely put out of the picture of God's plan. And it boils down to he was hungry and he wanted a, a plate of soup and he wanted it right now. And he was willing to sell his birthright. And as Christians, and we be guilty of doing something similar, we have something valuable, we have something worth millions of dollars. We're joint heirs with Christ. All things Christ has inherited and we inherit it with him. And that inheritance... I know a lot of it waits till we move on, but I think that the earnest that we looked at of the Holy Spirit is something that we can have now. And it's, it's riches that are tremendous. It's all exchanged for one moment of pleasure. And it, it, the scripture says Esau afterwards repented with tears, but it was gone. He could not get it back. He had sold it. If the, if the birthright was sold, there's no way to get it back anymore. The opposite end of that, I look at Moses. Moses was raised with, you know, Egypt, I think, was the world empire of his day. There was tremendous riches, earthly riches in Egypt. He was, I think, probably next in line for the throne. And he 
made some choices. I'd like to just read a few verses there in, in Hebrews 11. It talks about that. Verse 24. As by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he had respect unto recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we, by this morning these riches are available by faith. We believe and we make choices accordingly. And as we make those choices, God enriches our lives for his glory. May God bless this morning.